One sunny spring day, not all that long ago, my wife Kiki and I got into our pickup truck and drove to Abilene, Kansas, where we toured the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library and Boyhood Home. My stated reason for going there as I interviewed the director of the Eisenhower Museum was this. I want to use the specificity of the Eisenhower Museum to talk about the museum experience for travelers. I would like my listeners to think more thoughtfully about how things are presented to them as travelers by museums and how they're curated for those experiences. Could you state your name just so I don't mispronounce it in the introduction? Sure, Dawn Hammett. I am a museum professional from the southeastern part of the United States. This position became available and I applied for it because the presidential libraries have always been like a premier museum system within the field. And that's what really drew me here in the first place. Now, had this been a typical travel day, today's podcast episode might have been a standard Q&A discussion about the wonders of museums and how, in the context of one of America's premier presidential museums, these kinds of institutions can deepen the experience of travel to new places. But since Abilene is not far from where I'm based when I'm not on the road, I was inspired to visit another north-central Kansas museum on the way home from Abilene, a homegrown institution that is very much in the spirit of museums worldwide, even as it doesn't seem to have much in common common with the Eisenhower Museum. Here's the owner. My name is Greg Long. Me and my wife, we own Long's Collectible Showplace and Gift Shop. We have a museum of Barbies and Hot Wheels of different varieties. We're in the Barbie room right now. There's almost 1,600 full-size Barbies that she's collected over the years, and I've helped her collect. And then we have all kinds of smaller versions of Little Kellys and Midges and different ones like that. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode explores museums, what they are, what they offer, and why they tend to attract travelers. This is less a focused investigation of the topic than it is an open-ended audio essay of sorts, one that mixes stories from the owner of a homemade Barbie doll and Hot Wheels toy museum with insights from the director of a national-class presidential museum that is operated by the National Archives Administration. As peculiar as this juxtaposition might seem, it's actually kind of fitting, since from their origins in prehistory, most all museums are essentially collections of objects that tell a story about who we are, what fascinates us, and what we aspire to be as humans in a given corner of the world. Museums are inextricably tied to travel, first as surrogates for travel that give us a wider window on the world when we aren't in a position to travel far, and later when we get a chance to travel to some of those farther-flung places as institutions that tell a story about the places we're experiencing and the people who live there. Several sections of my new book, The Vagabond's Way, explore museums and how museums are in creative conversation with the world outside their walls. Now, the first time I visited the Eisenhower Presidential Library was in 1983 when I was an elementary school student, and it was a rite of passage for all Kansas sixth graders to pile into a school bus, travel to Abilene, and tour the museum that honored the only U.S. president to be raised in our state. To be honest, this wasn't the best way for the younger version of me to get engaged in the Eisenhower Museum, as I mainly remembered having a serious crush on a classmate named Angela and being scandalized when my friend Brian listened to an Ozzy Osbourne cassette on his Walkman when we were in the place of meditation next to Eisenhower's grave. Museums like the Eisenhower Library are, by design, serious places, even when their young visitors aren't in the mood to be serious. Here's Don Hammett. Our mission is to 
allow the public to engage with the presidency and this particular president. So that mission is pretty serious. We're also talking about humans and their human life and their existence. Eisenhower mandated it to us. When the museum was built originally, he said, this building is not to honor me, but to honor all service members. And so we tried to still honor that request of his. So we talk about the administration. We have to talk about him. He was the president of the United States. I believe that I knew full well who he was to the world. However, as a Kansan, he wouldn't allow that sort of self-inflated ego to come through. So what I say is that I feel as though this location is a full encapsulation of his life because while he was born in Texas, he grew up here. He spent most of his childhood here. And then he and his family gave the house to be open to the public. And then he agreed to have a museum built and he agreed to have his papers donated here. And he agreed to be buried here. To me, this is his full life. He lived other places, he did other things, but you can learn everything about him right here. Is there an aura to this museum that leads people in certain directions? I say because you go to the Louvre and you go to the Mona Lisa because that's what you're supposed to go to. What do people gravitate toward here, if anything? That is a really hard question. We have a lot of visitors who perceive the 1950s, which is the Eisenhower administration, to be sock hops and poodle skirts. And when they go through, they enter with a nostalgia. And when they end, they have a different perception of the time period. And so I think that for me, I'm interested in that change of perception where they came in with a nostalgia and they left with a deeper understanding of what actually occurred. I think it's interesting that Don mentions the word nostalgia, since I think that all museums trigger a kind of nostalgia, whether they mean to or not. In a way, the objects that are collected in museums are an extension of nostalgia, since they seek to commemorate and prolong the memory of something specific yet ephemeral, something that represented a certain time amidst an ever-changing world. Here's Greg Long again. Like I say, there's 1,600 full-size Barbies in here, different varieties, years. What's your oldest Barbie in here? The oldest, that's hard to say. I do have a bunch that's unboxed that are probably some of the older ones in the early 60s. They didn't stay in boxes back then days very well. So when you find an old one like that, they're usually just a doll in their clothes. You have a very international bunch of Barbie dolls here, which as a travel podcast, I think my listeners might be interested. I see Moroccan Barbie, Peruvian Barbie, Polish, Chilean Barbie, French, Incan, Chinese. Is that a series of Barbies? They are the dolls of the world. Hmm. The festivals of the world ones Hmm. are there. Did your wife initiate the Barbie aspect of it? Actually initiated by my daughter buying my wife her first Barbie. So back in 89, I think it was, or something like that, she bought her first Barbie. And that kind of set her on the way because she normally collected porcelain dolls. I guess a big question that pops to mind, how did it go from something that your daughter loved to something that's a public or open to the public museum? We needed a place to actually show these because we had them, we collected for several years. Mm-hmm. We actually opened this place in 2008. Up until then, we had them in our room, in our house, in boxes, and you really couldn't see them and enjoy them. 
So one day we found this building going up for auction, come down and watched the auction, ended up buying the building. So then we started the remodeling and setting up displays and just like Christmas, opening up boxes and seeing all these Barbies you haven't seen for a few years. This is just our own personal collection and we felt we'd open it up. It's a business, but it's a hobby. We're not wealthy rich, but we're not bad off either. Did you ever dream you would be a museum curator when? Yeah, years of collecting and things, we're thinking we got to get it out to where we can see it and other people can enjoy it. You just can't mm -hmm. have it in a box and enjoy it. You spend thousands of dollars and put it in a box and 20 years later pull it out and say, oh, I had forgot I even had this one. Where do you think the line is between being a collector and being a collector who also has a museum? I think a lot of people would love to have a place like what we got. I mean, because we, we put in a big chunk of change to get the building. But a lot of people just got these collections in their basements or in their garages or that type of thing. It's worth noting here that there's a direct connection between private collections and public museums. Before there was such a thing as an open-to-the-public museum in Europe, for example, aristocrats maintained Wunderkammern, also known as Cabinets of Wonders, which consisted of curious objects a given aristocrat had collected on journeys to distant places. Wonder cabinets were mostly shown to friends, family, and important guests, but the earliest museums, I'm thinking here of places like the British Museum, which was founded in 1753, featured formerly private collections of scientific and archaeological objects that were displayed for public enjoyment. Don Hammett of the Eisenhower Museum told me how her own career as a museum director traces back to her childhood interest in looking at objects that fascinated her. I had an amazing science teacher in the ninth grade, Mrs. Mayfield, and I really wish I could tell Mrs. Mayfield thank you. At the time, she was an amateur archaeologist, and the world was different, and she would bring to class some things that she found when she was doing archaeology work. She really sparked this interest in me of the material culture of humans. I love these things. I get to share them with other people. History is history, but the way we interact with that or the way we interpret that history changes over time. So it's really a gentle balance between the objects that you have, because in a museum you use objects to tell a story. So you have to base it on what objects do you have, what story needs to be told, and also the space that you have to do that. What we did was narrow the story down to Ike's life and Ike's administration and Ike's war efforts. So we took out some of the artifacts that didn't directly relate to Eisenhower's story. Some of that extra we took away so that we could really narrowly focus on the story that we needed to tell. One of the things we were really attentive to when we redid the exhibits recently was to present the information for a new group of people who did not interact with World War II or, you know, had, they have no personal connection to the Eisenhower administration. What we did for the new exhibits was basically allow Ike and Mamie to speak for themselves. We decided as we were building the exhibit design that we had enough of their words that they could tell their story. They could do it way better than we could. So throughout the exhibit, as appropriate, we put quotes from them or sound bites of video clips from them 
so that they can tell their story. And that's just a design decision that we made. And another group of people would have made a different decision. It's worth noting here that no museum, or at the very least no healthy museum, is ever static in the way it presents its objects to visitors. Even at the Barbie and Hot Wheels Museum, the display areas contain stacks of boxes that don't contain Barbies or Hot Wheels. Eventually I asked Greg about that, and this is what he told me. As we get another room cleared out back in the back, we're going to be expanding a little further and okay. putting out more displays. Mm-hmm. Those are actually all Beanie Babies in those boxes. And is there a Beanie Baby section of this, or no, is that in the future? We have That's in the future. We haven't got anything yet. I see a box here. It has Is that perfume? That's Avon bottles, yeah. Avon perfume, okay. We have a display of those in the gift shop area there. Okay. And there's hundreds of those that they've made over the years. Is this Pez dispensers behind you Pez here? Pez dispensers. we got lots of Pez dispensers. Okay. One of my co-workers, when I worked at the lumber yard, when I was working, she collected Pez and we'd talk and, you know, collaborate on them things and she'd tell me what to look for. And mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from her. Sometimes it's moments like these, moments when you find boxes of Beanie Babies and Pez dispensers in a museum that is technically dedicated to other things, that allow a given museum to capture your imagination in a way that goes beyond the stated mission of what's supposed to be there. I shared this notion with Don Hammett in the context of an Eisenhower Museum exhibit I hadn't expected to find there. One thing that I've often found memorable about my own experience of museums is being surprised by something. I was surprised by something on the way here. Can you guess what it was? No. It was the Paint by Numbers exhibition. Oh, yeah. My wife and I had to rush through the museum. We're going to go back this afternoon because we had this interview. There's these Paint by Numbers paintings that was strangely delightful because, one, it's a moment in history when the emergent middle class was looking for edification exercises and Paint by Numbers stepped in. And then there's Nelson Rockefeller. And there's Ethel, Ethel Merman, and there's J. Edgar Hoover, and they all have paint-by-number paintings amazing. in the museum. Do you design surprise into the layout here? Sometimes we do, actually. So we had this collection of paint-by-numbers kits that if we don't develop and exhibit, then how do we use them? That's the core of what we try to do. We collect things to protect them, but then we use them for educational purposes. So this is a moment in time of the 50s, you're exactly right, and we wanted to share that with people. There was an excellent exhibit in Washington. I don't even remember which exhibit it was, which museum it was, but it was about shoes. It was the different cultures and the shoes that we wear. I just thought it was fascinating how many different shoes humans have had to come up with for the different places we live and the different jobs that we do. Learning about people, man. Love it. In the end, most museums, whether we realize it or not, are in active conversation with the communities that surround them, which is why the most compelling museums we visit can sometimes be the ones that don't require us to travel all that far, that is, the ones in or near our own hometowns. At times, visiting two or more seemingly unrelated museums in the same place can reveal how those institutions have more in common than you might think. I know that Abilene recently has the largest belt buckle in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that are just non-Ike related but are a part of the texture of this part of Kansas. How is the museum in conversation with those? So that's a great question because Abilene is several things, right? Like we're the end of the Chisholm Trail. We have this great cowboy history. There's the Greyhound Hall of Fame right across the street. We also have some fantastic Victorian homes that are also a part of our story. And so I think what we do 
locally is a really good job of realizing that those stories are interconnected. You are a traveler and a tourist, okay? What I have noticed in my life as I've moved around is that we don't act like tourists in our own hometown. And I challenge everyone to act like a tourist in your own hometown. And quite frankly, there's always something to learn. There's always something to do. I think Don is right, in part because traveling close to home has always been a way of keeping your curiosity sharp. Curiosity is, of course, one of the greatest travel virtues, and it doesn't just apply to places on the far side of the world. It is, in fact, a travel muscle that can be kept strong by using it close to home. Sometimes, as with the Eisenhower Museum, it can offer insight into the humanity of a famous person. Other times, as was the case with the Barbie and Hot Wheels Gallery, the museum itself is kind of a meta-attraction, a statement on what fascinates a particular person or persons who've decided that their own museum is an important thing to have out in the world, which is why I'll give Greg the last word here. What do you like about being a Hot Wheels and Barbie Museum curator? It's just fun for us. It's not really a job. We just do what we want to do and how we want to do it. We don't have to please anybody but ourselves. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts, which this week was edited using an experimental AI tool that I'm still getting the hang of, so sorry for the occasional audio idiosyncrasies. To learn more about the Eisenhower Library and Museum in Abilene, Kansas, or the longest collectible Barbie and Hot Wheels showplace in Salina, Kansas, check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening. Listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.